Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Addicted Mind podcast. My name is Dwayne Osterland, and I'm your host, and we are on to another episode. Today, my guest is Benjamin Boyce. He is the author of Dr. Junkie, One Man's Story of Addiction and Crime That Will Challenge Everything You Know About the War on Drugs. Really enjoyed interviewing Benjamin. It was great to hear his story and how ending up in prison impacted him and how the war on drugs really impacted his ability to better his life and live a life that was meaningful to him. So we talk about the war on drugs and how that really can exacerbate the problems of addiction and the impact that has on our society as a whole. I really think it's a great interview, so I hope you enjoy it. Don't forget, if you are enjoying the Addicted Mind podcast, please share it with a friend or write a review in iTunes. That really does help people find the podcast. And think about joining our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and type in the Addicted Mind podcast, click join, and continue the conversation online. All right, everyone, let's go ahead and start this episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. My guest today is Benjamin Boyce, and he is going to talk about his book, Dr. Junkie. One Man's Story of Addiction and Crime That Will Challenge Everything You Know About the War on Drugs. I'm definitely excited to have you on the show to talk about this. I think this is such an important topic. So, Ben, you want to introduce yourself and tell us a little about you and your story and how you got to the book. Absolutely. I love that you didn't introduce me as doctor. I've found that since I've gotten my Ph.D., it's weird to have that show up, but it tends to be the default introduction. So I appreciate that. But 
the name of the book, Dr. Junkie, isn't just a rough reference to this. The big word in there is junkie that people are like, what are you doing just tossing that word around? I'm an right. addicted person and I did some time in prison. That's what sort of rooted my whole journey. I grew up misinformed about drugs like most of us do, told bad, bad, no, no, so that when I found them and realized they did a lot of good for me in the things that drugs do work really good for, the guidance I had was the street and it was hide, don't tell people the truth. And as we all know, small cuts go into big cuts, grow into like large wounds that are all, you know, festered or whatever. So I had misinformation that exploded into a lifestyle of crime and punishment. I was told that I was a criminal. So once I ran out of money, it was easy to start uh, stealing stuff. For me, it was also always petty theft, just trying to get enough for the next fix, but ended up shooting uh, mainline injecting heroin and cocaine for four or five years near the end of it. Uh, went to prison in 2004, spent some time in the largest walled prison on earth, actually, which is a really cool completely unrelated story. But when you talk about getting a, an image of like, well, what's prison really like? This place was opened the, a year or two after Alcatraz started housing federal inmates. That's the sort wow. of facility it was. And it was what it was like to go to prison for being an addicted person in Michigan. Everybody goes to that building. So I got out and there's a, a odd story there too. Our parole requirements across the country shackle us. They have us Working, we have, we're required to work, but especially fresh out of prison, it's, it's really hard to get any job except the one that just it's better than nothing, and and it's it's fulfilling to many people. If it, if it's your thing, that's great. But many of us are resigned to work jobs that are just paying the bills, and then we sometimes have trouble getting there. I couldn't get a license because part of my parole was that right, you got right. caught driving a stolen vehicle at one point. You can't have a license for X amount of days, but you got to keep a job. So I found a loophole. I could go to college and that covered the full-time employment requirement. So I got a bachelor's thinking like, man, I'll never use it. They're never going to hire me. And then got accepted to a master's right. really unexpectedly got that worked through a PhD. And it was only at the end of that, that the hoops I've had to jump through to get some of the jobs that I've now been able to get, even with the master's degree, I still had HR departments that were like, sorry, man. With people right. behind me, I eventually got into a university. I now teach college classes, uh, both at Denver University, where I got my PhD, but my full-time job, or my larger, it's just about full-time, is University of Colorado in Denver. And we've recently started teaching in prison. So I actually teach two classes this semester in two different prisons here in Colorado that are they're not certificates, they're actual degree classes where they're getting credit from the University of Colorado on a transcript, but it'll look no different. Wow, so there's my professional a, side. I also That's amazing drugs. though, just, just, a, just your story of, of walking through all that. And I, I want to talk more a little bit when we go a little bit farther about all that, the, the criminality of it and how that really, like you said earlier, shackles somebody and really prevents them from experiencing the things they need in their life to create a meaningful life. But first, I just want to go back a little bit. And you said, you know, you had your your cuts and your scars that kind of led to this drug use. Can you talk a little bit about that to give some people some kind of context of your story? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I've heard you talk on some previous episodes with guests about big T and small T trauma. It's one way to describe yeah. 
this area that luckily we're starting to address and, and recognize more, which is that traumas, whatever people say it is, you can have five people in a room who can all experience the same thing. And 20 years later, four of them are like, what are you talking about? I don't even remember that. And one of them's had their life go awry. So for me, yeah, trauma, absolutely. I, I've got a lot of different things I, I've pinned it down to clearly, but my biggest one was the environment I lived in. So I'm what for a while was called Asperger's. It's now grouped in with the autism spectrum because there's so many similarities and that seems really beneficial to me to understand what it was. Lots of studies nowadays in the last five, 10 years have shown that people with Asperger's or on the autism spectrum that use marijuana or other cannabis products, I think it's 60 to 90 days, some sort of set amount of time. Because if you've smoked once or twice, you realize like the first couple times is <laughs> you got to practice to make it the medication work, right? right uh, they show right. reduced reduced social anxiety, all sorts of benefits that I realized at 15. But the criminality showed up right behind that. And at 15, I was also really socially awkward, nerdy, right? And was smoking outside my school and really not paying attention, trying to just get medicated before class. And in one split second, went from dorky student to criminal. And as I was in the back of the cop car that day, driving to the jail, I had like this moment of realization that's just sort of sat with me ever since. It's like, you can't be a good guy and or the, the police can't be good guys. And in your mind, they're good guys. And also, the second they find you, you better have everything thrown out the window, put away. Not be, They're taking you to jail. You are the bad guy. I couldn't be the good guy and the bad guy. So my life from a very young age became hide the marijuana. Uh, don't tell people the truth about what's going on. Be careful who you disclose your use to. My God, if you get pulled over, start performing. And when you live a lie that's rooted in an identity, first time I had one, and people kind of like criminals. Right. It's easy to just let that become self-fulfilling. So here you were kind of living in this suffering because, you know, no one knew what was, you probably didn't even know what was going on with you, but you knew something wasn't right. And you were able to find marijuana and it helped that. It helped that in some way. Right. Yeah. And, and a lot. Uh, I Again, the, there's two things here. The social aspect is that even if I would have had the diagnosis of Asperger's, it would have meant something totally different in the 90s, both from a stigma perspective. That's certainly still there. But my goodness, we are chipping away at that side of it. And right. from right. a treatment perspective, in my area and in most of our schools, we had one area, one classroom for many people or many schools called special education. And that's it. You're in the public or you're in the special education classroom. And that's a really difficult decision for parents to make because when you remove someone from the social setting they have and you surround them only with a small group of people and say, you're different than those fools out there, you know, be careful around them. It's a disservice to all of us. We've worked on that a lot, but none of this was available, let alone for me to go home with a study that didn't exist yet and say, ma, Check this out. <laughs> they found right. out that, that scientists and doctors are working on these studies that have found that, that cannabis helped. My parents were right. gone to jail. Yeah, absolutely. So that gets to that criminality of it. And and then here you have something that might help you, yet you have this war on drugs that then puts you into this system that makes it worse. Yeah. And now one more thing we know is as my addiction progressed and I was 
physically dependent and addicted to opioids for a while, that putting somebody in that situation, boom, in prison and doing what we do in almost all jurisdictions to this day, which is just put them in a cell with glass so we can keep an eye on them and wink, wink, the other incarcerated people can see them as well as sort of a, um, a, a symbol of what will happen to you if you do this evil thing we all know is evil drugs. And just let them dry out or cold turkey, as we say, for X. We know that that increases the likelihood of relapse when somebody gets out. And we also know that it really increases the likelihood of overdose once somebody gets out because you're taking them at a moment of trauma and double, doubling that trauma, putting them in a hole and making sure they know the people around you don't care. We sit in that cell for as long as we're there, sometimes years, but especially if it's a couple of days or a couple of hours waiting, <laughs> dreaming of the path we're going to walk to the dope house when we get out, the way we're going to somehow conjure up the cash for a hit. These things are so fixable, which I'm sure we'll talk about today, but it's the most heartbreaking part of the war on drugs is that withdrawal from opioids is totally unnecessary. It should never happen. And it fuels a huge proportion of all the issues we have. Right. I, I think, you know, this war on drugs was you know, and is in some ways really just black and white thinking and doesn't look at the nuance of all these different situations or the nuance of the human condition. Yeah, I think we have the wrong focus if we ever wanted to really fix the war on drugs. So my work now focuses on, we started talking before we were recording about the roots of the war on drugs. If you wind the clock back to the early 1900s, you could take your little mail order catalog and order a couple vials of heroin in a syringe to your door for like a couple bucks and just get it whenever you wanted. The reason that that changed wasn't because some clever politicians talked to doctors and said, oh, we've got to totally outlaw these things. It's because when you could mail order stuff, suddenly the regulations that were on shops that said whites only, they didn't work so well. And oh my God, the white folks that have been taking these chemicals forever lost our shit and we outlawed them. So Right. That's the one, the first thing that drove me to say, well, I got to study the war on drugs. But the more you look, the more you realize, not only did that just kind of stand, and now 100 years later, we just are like, well, they're outlawed. Let's take that for granted. Every bit of the war on drugs is built to do the opposite of what we would pretend it's supposed to do. Drugs cost about a buck a gram to produce cocaine and heroin if you were to grow your own in, in the jungles of right, South, right, uh, South right. America. And they're four to $500 a gram on the street, which means you can arrest people all day long. As long as someone's cell phone bill is due tomorrow and they get, or their rent, or they need some food for their kids and they can make 50 bucks off walking something from one door to another, what are we talking about here? But we've built the war on drugs to make sure a victory looks like making sure the price of street drugs goes up tomorrow. And what kind of nonsense is that? The dealers go away. The second, all that nasty 15% cocaine that they got stashed in their closet is worth bupkis because I can go to Rite Aid. And the trick that we need to make sure we always include is immediately be surrounded by people whose job it is to talk to me, to offer me all the services that my drug dealer doesn't want to offer me. Medical services, explanations of how these drugs work and what alternatives might be for me to be a little safer. Therapy, counseling, access to groups, a place to lay my head tonight. We can make sure that people have incentives to bump into and have relationship with those people and get rid of every illegal drug dealer and all the crime that goes with that overnight. Or we can keep sending them to drug dealers with no therapist there 
who have every incentive to cut their products, make as much money as possible, and get me to buy some cocaine today along with my heroin, right? That never happens at the doctor. Right. But I'm going to say this where, like, I think we've been taught to believe that, oh my gosh, if these drugs are legal, oh my gosh, everybody's going to be addicted to it. And everything is, you know, our society is going to fall apart. You know, it makes me think of like Reefer Madness, right? <laughs> that, that, old, yeah. Yeah. that old propaganda film, you know, it's like, we're all going to go crazy. Yeah. And there's two pieces to that. One is we've got some uh, quite a bit of evidence now that in the United States, we're very individualistic. We say, we seem to have, have part of our cultural identity based on being the best in the first. So when somebody says there's another place far away that's done something long ago that we have pretended we don't know about, like Portugal, and now 20, yeah. 25 other countries have there's there's no real language to say this. It's not pure decriminalization. It's certainly not straight up legalization, but they've ensured that no one goes to jail for having drugs in their pocket. Sometimes there's still things you got to do and you could go to jail if you say, I'm not going to do it. And we've seen that those places make use go down. They make dangerous use go down. People stop shooting dope and instead use other methods to take it. And most importantly, we get full-time jobs and pay taxes. Like, that's kind of the the main purpose of this conversation is to get people in life, not just in a, a consistent loop of use. So let's talk a little bit about Portugal, because a lot of people may, may not have heard of that and may not know about what Portugal did. Yeah. About 1% of the Portuguese population was addicted to injecting heroin. Oh, I'm going to, I didn't look the date up, but I believe it was 83. It was in the early 80s. That's one in a hundred, right? Like, oh my God, this is a huge problem. And so it hit, it reached a tipping point where politicians, even the ones that were anti-drug said, well, what do we got to lose? What do we got to lose? Let's let these yahoos who think legalizing drugs is going to fix the problem, pr show everybody how dumb of an idea that is. And then the rest had read some science and were like, this might work. And what do you know? The needles cleared up out of parks, the crime related to a lot of the crime, rather, related to use went away because people had access to these chemicals and a safe spot to use them. And since then, over and over, you ask politicians that were once anti-drug, there's not as many nowadays still around as there was because it's been so long, but they are very clear that they don't want to go back. They've seen what happens when you take this step. And it's not because you, I mean, the, the answer to what you said, which is a very legitimate counter-argument, if I could go get heroin, don't you think I'd go get heroin? For most people, the answer is a clear no. But instead of taking that easy, would you go get heroin if it was legal? I'm going to pretend you're me. I would say probably, right? Now, I'm going to go get some heroin today, hypothetically. Where I, I go to get it? I'd I go to a part of town I might not be familiar with, pay somebody who is up to, I don't know what, making it in their basement, mixing it with whatever, getting it from somebody doing I don't know what and risk whatever happens there and then try to get out of there without going to prison and never bump into somebody that says, I'll give you the drug if you insist, but what's going on? Why today? Right? There's a way to do this that, I mean, you emphasized this earlier, leans into our humanity, but I think we've also got to keep it in the confines, the framework of what our culture demands. We aren't going to be able to talk people into coming out of pocket to pay for addicted people to just play video games and shoot dope all day. But we can probably talk people into saving money 
on the $31,000 a year it costs to incarcerate somebody, on the tons of police officers, this is going to be hard. We're going to have to help them out too, but that are going to lose their job when they're not making drug arrests. We won't need the officers that we have when the petty theft goes down, when the violence related to drug use goes down, when it doesn't matter if I have some dope in my pocket. Yeah. And, you know, this reminds me of when I started working in in mental health and I I worked at a treatment facility and it was for treatment instead of prison time. Right. That was the the program. And I I can tell you that I felt like I like my hands were tied for these individuals who really wanted to change their life. I mean, oh, my gosh, you know, when when you have a compassionate person to talk to these individuals, you know, they wanted a good life, yet, you know, there were all these crazy mandates on complete abstinence and there was no flexibility. And and it just was like, it was the antithesis of, of the help that they needed. And, you know, that goes into like harm reduction. I'm, I'm definitely yeah. a big believer in harm reduction, but it was like, oh my gosh, I, they, they are, I'm trying to help them and it's an uphill battle. And they have this uphill battle because of this war on drugs and this zero tolerance and they're in the system. And it's like, they can't even make one tiny little mistake. I remember I had one client, it broke my heart. He was doing so good. And he did one little kind of stupid decision. It really wasn't that bad. Yet he was back in prison for that. And they, you know, it was just like, oh my God, like really? The real irony of it is, wanted as the end result it's one more piece of the war on drugs that seems the closer you look to be built counterproductively if we wanted people to stop using drugs i know this sounds weird but we've seen in country after country give them access to their drugs surround them with people that care about them and don't tell them this because it's not a requirement but they will naturally we all do this is just part of the human condition and i'll add that little caveat at the end the one out of X amount of people that doesn't, that still just wants to use heroin for the rest of their life is going to do it anyway, probably on your dime and my dime. Why are we spending all of this effort and energy fighting a hundred year old war that is largely against our own citizens who could all be, instead of costing us money, paying taxes, running businesses, having productive lives. It was the biggest surprise for me when I, I used methadone Jeez, it's been so long, 15 15 years ago now. At one of my points when I was on heavy doses of intravenous heroin after getting out of prison, and it was the first time I I had a massive dose. I think it was 220 milligrams or something at the beginning, where I it was seven in the morning one morning, and I took it and it kicked in on the way home. And I had this moment of realization where I went, What the fuck am I gonna do for the rest of the day? And like I said, that was the point where I was like, Well, maybe school. I mean, I do still have to get a job, I'm on parole, maybe this could count. Suddenly, I realized there's other ways to achieve those same states that we use drugs to get to that you just sort of get preoccupied always chasing the drug when you're in an addiction loop. If you can just put that aside for a day or a week or a month or a year, the wound starts to heal. Yeah, like all you said, you said earlier, that small T, big T trauma, you have the space to heal it. So many of the people that I I was working with, they had a lot of early childhood trauma that no one around them knew how to address and they didn't have the space to address it. And once they had the space to address it, they, as human beings, I think we just naturally do it. We start yeah. to, to, to work on it when we're out of uh, 
when we're safe enough and we're out of survival mode, right? But like yeah. you said earlier, the 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 war on drug pushes us back into survival mode and not into a a, a healing mode, if that makes sense. Yeah, and it's I mean it's worse than just like because we're sort of metaphorically saying pushes us into survival mode. We haven't been specific about you know mechanisms in the brainstem kicking out. But when we when we do back up and say, well, what is it really like when you have people who are incentivized to say lie to their support network? Does that make addictions better or worse? We've got the research over and over that says people like me that just for I mean pure luck, right? I wish I could find the spot that I hunkered down and just, but I just dropped the bullshit one day. I realized like a big part, largely from therapy, a big part of my problem is not owning who I was, and my therapist was trying to say. And then you'll stop using drugs. And I was like, I'll show you. So I just started, you know, my parents for the or my, my family for the longest hated it that I'd just be like, oh, no, I use drugs. And here's what they are. And yesterday, I didn't use this and this. But today, I'm gonna, you're not supposed to say that stuff. Because we know the story of people who use drugs, and really, even people that ever have is disaster. They don't publish books, they don't get PhDs, they don't work in the prison, my God. And if you are one of those people, Right. There's a lot of us, right. tons of us, people that you, you know this, that most people yep. wouldn't believe are still healthy drug users. But we fear two things. Number one, getting like kicked out of our jobs or not getting the calls for the promotion. But number two, most of us honestly fear in our hearts that if we if we say something about it, we'll be part of the problem. My God, what if one of my undergraduate students who is going to use drugs anyway hears me talk about it and ask me for advice. What I'm what am I supposed to do? And instead of being thrilled, which we should be, we're horrified. Right. Yeah, where you can talk about it, a person can think it out. They can they have the space to you know, do you need support in this way or that way? Or here's the pros and cons. Here's, you know, make the decision. You know, yeah, there's the because, other real irony is most yeah. of the people. My I I had a daughter that we had to practice what we preached when she decided she wanted to try MDMA. And we had always gone through our minds like, well, what happens? Will your kids want to try drugs? Pretty damn sure the answer is a yes. Okay, what do you want them to do when they have the thought, I want to try drugs? And what parents say behind the, the curtain usually is, run the hell away and don't tell me. But what they change that to when they say the words is like, feel comfortable to come talk to me, but never do them. So we were like, well, let's practice what we preach. We've got to make sure our kids actually do feel comfortable. And our first question was, well, then what if the answers, here's the horrifying thing. If you explain to them, blah, 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 do you still want to use it? What if the answer is yes? Do you say, well, then good luck. Go have fun. Right. 15 right. years, 16 years old, cruising the gut, trying to find MDMA and make sure you get a test kit. We'd realize, well, we're going to have to go get her MDMA and we'll have to test it for her and show her how to do that. Great opportunity as a parent. And then damn it, we're going to have like 16-year-old girls tri tripping under rolling up in our upstairs. This was all far more than seven years ago. So even if it had happened, we'd be beyond the point where any of this is something I can get in trouble for. But that's my point. Like the fact that those thoughts that my wife and I had, those conversations that I look back on, and ultimately she read about it and realized it was as simple as reading the name of the word, methylene dioxide methamphetamine methylene dioxy methamphetamine she was like what's that last part is that looks like methamphetamine oh it is <laughs> and that was enough for her to say time out right and she yeah. read a little bit of an article and said she was going to hold off but 
Years yeah. later, I sat down with her and her husband uh, about a year and a half ago after their first mushroom trip, and we actually debriefed on that. And it was another really cool, by now she's 23 or 4, but it was a really cool opportunity to play the part we should be playing as role models. To, to be able to talk about it, to be able to discuss it, to be able to make good decisions. And I mean, that is definitely challenging as a parent. I mean, it's scary. You want to protect your kids at all costs. And the, the, the right answer is complicated. But once again, I think as we were talking very, uh, we were talking earlier, you know, these are nuanced situations that have to be, you know, you have to be open to be able to explore it and talk about it. And, and figure it out and create that kind of culture because that's where we, I think, we make the best decisions when we have that openness to explore it. And a lot of times yeah. we realize, oh, maybe I don't want to do that. You know, the maybe that's not where I want to be. Free. Maybe, yeah, yeah. And, and the, it's it, the irony. That's sort of what I was wrapping that up with is like, you, if you talk to your kids and don't just say, don't do drugs, they'll ruin your brain, but you explain, the biggest one to me is that we know that people that make it to the age of 21 without having developed some sort of substance abuse issue before that are like 90% less likely to ever in their life struggle with substance abuse because they've gone through the worst, most tumultuous updates in their brain that are awful. You can't have fun from Legos anymore, for God's sake, right? Growing right. up sucks. And yeah. you made it through that without drugs. Telling that to a kid and saying, I'm not just saying this because I'm a jerk. Let's look at how that works and how neurons work and what MDMA does in the brain and what happens if you, you know, use it long term. Kids are pretty smart. They know we're full of shit when we tell them just don't use drugs, blah, blah, blah. And they just right. get out of our sight and we feel good because they don't tell us about it. <laughs> right. And we live in ignorance. You know, ignorance is bliss, right? <laughs> it doesn't yeah. always work that well, but it's definitely blissful. <laughs> yep. Absolutely. So let's talk about, so you were kind of stuck in the system with, you know, how did you start to find your way out? And then now what do you do with all that knowledge? Yeah, uh, I am getting ready to, a book comes out like in a week. So by the time you air this, it might already be out, but I had to end it this is the requisite ending for a book about uh, drug use. If you're a drug user, it's an autobiographical book called Dr. Junkie. And I had to be honest at the end and say, I understand that I live in a country where everywhere you look, you're supposed to say, well, the bad things I did, I get I should take responsibility, but find the reasons why. A therapist will tell you, understanding why most logical people in your shoes would have done that will give you a lot of ability to move forward in life because you're not a bad person. But when it's time for the good things you do, I got a PhD. I'm supposed to jump on the brag train and be like, I did it. When I'm 90 days clean and sober, I'm supposed to hold my coin up and not have a moment where like this flashes through my mind that I'm like, well, what's remember what the real difference is between me and the person that didn't do it. And most 12-steppers would say, well, nothing. I mean, it's a whole lot of luck mixed with a smidge of you turned it over to a higher power. Luckily, you were at a certain point in your program. You had a sponsor in place. You didn't go into that bar. It's a whole lot of luck. Nothing awful happened to you that week that if it would have, things would have gone bad. So as much as I'd like to say the golden nugget for me, it, it was pure luck. It was that I have a brain that luckily could get a, a lot of the same buzz from learning things. It was that I stumbled at the right times into educators that saw my application and went, oh, prison. 
yeah, he'd be cool in a master's program instead of freaking out and throwing it in the garbage because we have a, a stigma around people in prison like these fools are going to shank us right right all of it yeah. was just a matter of of getting lucky until i got a support network around me until you got a support network around you yeah and you know in life luck luck definitely plays plays part of that i think what you're what i'm seeing or what i what i make up is that you know now you kind of saw that luck but in a way you're trying to create that luck for others yeah I don't yeah, know if that and, makes sense. You know, no, it's like you it, saw this these, is, I was lucky about these things, but they're also like, right. oh, how so can you're I big get, on mindfulness? Can... Yeah, yeah, let me try to sew it together because you're right. It sounds kind of incoherent. Like, well, wait, which is it? Mindfulness sort of teaches you first and foremost that until you let go of control and free will in the way we usually think about these things, you're not even really going to understand what's going on in your own body, let alone experience right. life in a way that you pick up on the little things. That's what I got to is realizing the brain that I is I reach in my tool bag when I really want to go do some cocaine. And I don't like in the other side, I'm like, you got too much going on. Today's not a good day to use cocaine. The DOC might drug test you because you teach their student, whatever, right? That I reach right. in my tool bag. And when I look in there, it used to just be empty. Sometimes I'd be like, oh, guess I'm going to get some cocaine. I look in there now and I'm like, you could read a book about something neuro neurological. And for me, that fires some of the same things. I could record a podcast now because I've opened that avenue to me. They fire the same things. So once I found the tool, I certainly had to like work out that muscle and get it as big as possible right. and add things to it. But I was pure luck that it was there. And that's the mission in life is to just figure out what works for you because it might not be school. It, it always is going to be a support group. But for some people, it's not traditional therapy. Some people, it's a group of people who they are your therapist. They just don't like it when you call them that, right? <laughs> right? Family yeah. members or friends that are going through the same thing. 12 step is a therapy meeting. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So finding those, that, that, that support. And what I would also say is like, not, not stopping looking for it, I guess, looking for what yeah. you need. Just keep looking Always. for what you need. Yeah. When am I better? Right. I, ben Sessa, Dr. Ben Sessa, who's an MDMA doctor, said this to me a couple of years ago. Like, am I better? Like people always sort of assume you go to a certain point and then you got your two-year coin yet? You must be better. By the way, I don't have a problem with 12-step. I don't practice 12-step. And it's really what I think we're focusing in on today is what works for you in recovery, how, how your recovery looks. You got to define it for yourself. And for those of us that the 12-step model doesn't work, we've got some searching to do because even most programs that say they're not 12-step are like, yeah, this is a 12-step packaged. In, <laughs> they're in very similar in a lot of yeah. ways. We're a religious culture and it works so well because we just understand the framework for higher power, giving your control over, making amends. Those are spiritual principles most of us learn by the time we're three. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, well, First of all, I want to, I think we could continue this conversation, but we're running up on our time. There's so much, yeah, sorry, so much I'm, good stuff here. I took no, off. <laughs> but that, that's totally okay. So w before we wrap up, there's always a question I love to ask at the end. It's like, if someone out there is struggling, what would you want to tell them? What would be the one thing you'd want to say to them? If you could say one yeah, thing. Yeah. I'm glad this came up right now because it was sort of where we were at, seamless switch over. Uh, define your own recovery. And I don't mean like, today it's i just want to shoot dope then haha ha, call it recovery what i mean is like in those moments of clarity decide what 
you would want your life to look like in 10, 20, 30 years. And then just start filling your tool bag. And it it's not going to look like everybody else's. Sometimes people are like, I mean, over and over, you're not clean and sober, so you're not in recovery. I'm fine if they feel that way. It might help their recovery to feel that way. But if your recovery doesn't include not using drugs and alcohol, mine does not, right? I use drugs and alcohol. Let yourself define that and make sure it's it's tenable and then work towards whatever it looks like. Keep working towards your best self, I guess. Yeah, keep absolutely. going, keep going forward and and uh it, it it's out there for you, whatever that is. You just have to start to define it and start moving in that direction. Absolutely. Love yourself along the way, as cliche as that sounds, right? <laughs> Figure out oh. what's in your toolbox that you can love. Yep. Self-compassion. All right. Where where can people find you? Where can they find yeah. your book? So uh, you can find me teaching prison classes. At, no, uh, <laughs> the book's on Amazon, on wherever you buy books. I, I always say this, like, I'm totally on board with like, just go to your local bookstore when COVID calms down a little bit and just ask them. It's called Dr. Junkie, One Man's Story of Addiction and Crime that Challenges Everything You Know About the War on Drugs. Uh, you can also catch me on my podcast, which is Doc, Dr. Junkie. And I didn't mention this, but I'll just add it since we're here. Those words were not, I started to say this, not randomly chosen. Doctor and junkie are the two titles that have been applied to me throughout my life that had more sway on doors that were opened and slammed than any other. Uh, Bell Hooks passed away a couple weeks ago, but she was big on language, the power of language. Yeah. So that's the reason I chose that name to work on this larger project. I, I love that. That is that is a really powerful statement. And when you just defined it that way, it just really struck home for me. Like, wow, yeah. And you can see that and you can see how our culture can define us so quickly without really giving us the opportunity to be our whole selves. So Yeah. And and we are what we are. This whole like it, it sounds cliche, but when people are deploying terms like junkie I like that sometimes somebody like me is going to flash into somebody's mind. I mean, I may have sort of derailed that insult just a little bit. And that's about the best you can do with language power because those insults are built into our being. Oh, yeah. Language is critical. Wow. We could we could do a whole nother episode of just language, <laughs> which would be great. But yeah, let's plan it. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Because uh, language is, man, it can define our whole world. So... Ben, thank you so much for coming on to the Addicted Mind podcast. Yeah, I just really appreciate it. Yeah, let's. Uh, I'll, I'll get with you in the future. Maybe we can set one up the other way. Yeah, that would be great. I would love it. Cool. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to the Addicted Mind podcast. As usual, all the show notes will be at theaddictedmind.com. You can get all the links to Benjamin's book. If you're getting a lot out of the podcast, please share it with a friend or write a review. That really does help people find the podcast. And if you want to continue the conversation online, think about joining our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and type in the Addicted Mind Podcast. All right, everyone, have a wonderful day. And I will talk to you on the next episode.
It's easy to blame ourselves for our struggles with alcohol. We see people around us being able to control their drinking without any consequences, yet no matter what we try, we can't seem to figure it out for ourselves. My name is Jillian Teets, and I am the host of the Sober Powered Podcast, where I use my biochemistry background to explain the latest research in addiction and help you understand both why you drink the way you do and how to develop the skills and mindset you need to find freedom from alcohol. I discuss topics like why we think about our drinking 24-7, why we have no off switch, and why we crave alcohol. If you're struggling with your drinking or you know someone who is, then I hope that you will check out the Sober Powered Podcast. New episodes every Friday. See you there.